Shireen here. You're listening to Code Switch, and I couldn't let this year get away without shouting out a story I absolutely loved that you may have missed. It ran on NPR's It's Been a Minute podcast, and it was told by producer Andrea Gutierrez. It's a story about the 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium, but it's so much more than that. It's about two sisters trying to learn about who they really are and where they come from. Dad was a storyteller. I think that's the best way to put it. Dad was a storyteller. That's my sister, Monica, and she's right. My dad was a storyteller, usually stories from his life. He had a whole repertoire, and we kids asked for his greatest hits a lot. Dad, tell us the one about Grandpa and the Rio truck. Dad, what about the time Father Geisel told you to get a haircut? But there was one thing he never really talked about much. His involvement in the Chicano Moratorium. Monica and I met up recently to go over these memories of Dad and to get to the bottom of them all. But before we get to that, I wanted to know, can you tell me what you know about it and how you know about it? I know it's part of the Chicano movement, 60s, 70s, but it was a protest against the high number, the disproportionate number of Chicano uh, youth being sent to Vietnam and dying. Lots of people were protesting the Vietnam War. But like my sister said, Mexican-Americans were dying in large numbers, about twice their proportion of the population. That's why the movement was called a moratorium. Protesters and organizers wanted to end this loss of life. So this was the Chicano movement's main argument that, um, as the slogan said at the time, la batalla está aquí, our, our struggle is here, our war is here, and we should be addressing inequities on the home front, not dying in Vietnam. That's Lorena Oropesa. She's a professor of history at the University of California, Davis. And as my sister and I started to piece together the events of August 29, 1970, I called up Lorena to learn more. Lorena says Chicanos weren't just protesting the war, they were marching for other issues affecting their community. Broader to the Chicano movement and looking at Los Angeles, there were the high school blowouts from 1968, where you're looking at a long tradition of educational inequity in terms of funding, in terms of school resources. They also tapped into the reality of poverty. This is a long-time struggle for Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants. It's like, even today, they're the essential workers, but those aren't necessarily the best-paying jobs. So the way the Chicano moratorium tied with long-standing issues of injustice and a struggle for equality among Mexican-Americans was really part of their brilliance. Chicanos are marching to protest the high casualty rate of our people in Vietnam. Lorena says at least 20,000 marched that day on Whittier Boulevard, the main thoroughfare through East L.A. People ended up at Laguna Park, filled with hope. There's so much joy. Like, there's music playing, and the, there's just chanting, and Chicanos are meeting people from all over, and then you have all these white liberals throughout L.A. and elsewhere coming in, and Native Americans joining, and it's just such a sense of accomplishment and joy. And, like, what happens when you bring all these people? Like, what comes next? But then... Things take a turn. There's a, a disturbance in a, a liquor store at the corner of the park. People wanted to get sodas because it was a hot day. But the owner of the store said, oh my goodness, I'm being robbed. And he'd like press the alarm. And you have sheriff's deputies come in. They drove protesters into the park, pushing against the crowd. 
you have young people deciding they're going to push back. So they form a counter line. And so when the sheriff's deputies throw a tear gas canister, like one young lady picked it up and threw it back at the sheriff's deputies. In the chaos, buildings burned. About 200 people were arrested, many were injured, and three people were killed, including journalist Ruben Salazar. He was the news director of Spanish-language TV station KMEX and a columnist for the LA Times. And he was dedicated to covering the Chicano community. It was an absolute hammer blow to the Chicano movement. And not just a blow to the movement, but as I later learned, to my own father. My dad was there that day, and he almost never talked about it. This is how my sister found out. I think I was in my early 20s when I learned about it, and it was during the May Day protests, which had to do with immigration rights in 2006. And I was going to Santa Ana College, and a large portion of students are brown. Um, And I chose not to go to school on that day. And so dad knew my schedule. And, uh, and he asked me why I didn't go to school. And I told him why and we were like watching stuff on TV. And just out of the blue, he said, you know, I was there when Ruben Salazar was murdered. And I was like, what? (laughs) He didn't give a whole lot of detail, but he said he was there. And that was the first time that dad had ever mentioned anything like of an identity of Chicano. Like we, up to that point, I had only ever heard dad like say, you know, we're American and that answers all questions. I could never understand why my dad didn't want to talk about his heritage, let alone his involvement in the Chicano movement. But historian Lorena Oropesa helped walk me through it. And it's stuff that I, and I'm sure many of you, didn't learn in school. So the Chicano moratorium was asking, like, why do we have to die to get equality? Why are the stakes so high? And then behind that question is, why are we still considered foreigners after being in this country, in some cases, before there was a country, right? So there was really a, a critical edge to the Chicano movement that asked, why is the price so high for equality? I'm interested in going back to 1848 and assimilation Mm -hmm. and kind of this Mm -hmm. being like a longer project. Tell me a little bit about that. Walk me through that bit of history. Okay. So what happens in 1848 when the U.S. acquires through war, through aggressive warfare, uh, a third of Mexico, is there's a treaty that ends this war. It's called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And one of the things the treaty promises is that the people in the conquered territory, so these people who were Mexican citizens, that they will be able to become American citizens at some point when Congress deems it's the right appropriate time. Think about it. In 1848, these former Mexican citizens are promised U.S. citizenship. Of course, it's only men. But in 1848, there are no black people who have U.S. citizenship, right? Mm because most are enslaved, Native Americans do not have U.S. citizenship. So what is happening through the promise of eventual American citizenship is that there's a recognition of whiteness. Recognition by whom, though? Of the U.S. government. Like, mm-hmm. hi, you get to vote. Hi, you're... So you are legally white. And whiteness in U.S. history is a powerful legal category. From the time there are Mexican-Americans, starting 1848, they have access legally to this privilege category. 
socially, economically, it's a completely different story. So I didn't learn about the Chicano moratorium until college in a Chicano mm-hmm. studies class. I think that's a very common experience. Absolutely. For, yeah. for, for, for young I people. Either. Right. <laughs> I grew up and I grew up in Orange County. So it's like right mm-hmm. there in L.A. near home. Why isn't the moratorium taught in K-12? Why are we? It seems to me that if you don't know something happened, you don't know what was once possible. Well, there is an effort to build ethnic studies into the K through 12 curriculum. But I think some people see it as a threat. If you're going to include more about the Chicano movement, what do you exclude? Mm. And so some people are really vested in a narrative. And also the conservative argument for the past 30 years is that you need to have a singular, positive, uplifting historical narrative that unites people. Right. Mm. And if you fiddle with that, what holds the United States together, given all of our diversity, history becomes like a, a, a glue. Well, and that's also assuming that all the rest of history that we get in school, especially as kids, is uniting, that that's something that everyone agrees to. And that it's just like we have a common ground about that. Right. right. So I, this was a very long time ago, but you know, there was like maybe a line about the missions. I mean, this was when I was in fourth grade, right? And it was like, I knew there was more there, but we didn't get more. American history starts on the East Coast and then just kind of moves westward. So if you're of a people who are already here and you're encountering as it comes across, it's just a different perspective that often is included. So yes, there's a, I'm going to quote a New Mexican politician here, because like in New Mexico, for example, there's still people who are trying to get their land that their ancestors lost after 1848. Mm -hmm. And the solution from New Mexican politicians um, when this, during the Chicano movement was, we just have to help them forget. Speaking of New Mexico, that got me and my sister Monica talking. Well, our grandparents on dad's side, they're from New Mexico, well, what is now New Mexico. So I had conversations with grandma about that. And grandma talked about how they only spoke Spanish in the, in the family until she went to kindergarten. And then after that, her parents are very adamant she speak English, no more Spanish for her. And that she had to assimilate and try to be as white as possible. But no matter what grandma did, time and time and time again, grandma was discriminated against. Like, she participated in a contest, I think it was for shorthand. It was like shorthand and typing or something in high school. And it was like statewide or something like that. And grandma won first place and they didn't even recognize her in public. And so that stuck with grandma her whole life where she stopped going by her birth name, which is Mariana, and went by Marianne. And then she only spoke English, did not speak Spanish. There were like two stories that we were being told about our family or our identity. And I think dad struggled with that a lot. Like he he went through that kind of identity crisis trying to figure out what the pieces that we had lost, the pieces that nobody talked about. But like... I think he was kind of maybe alone in that. And so he kind of did the same thing with us, didn't really talk about that part. I, another thing, I don't know if I've told you about this, but when mom sold the house, you know, we were going through and getting stuff out, especially dad's things. And there was like one place I'd never actually looked in before in my entire life, which was down below in his um, 
uh, nightstand. Oh yeah, because that was like a no-no spot. Yeah, there was stuff in front of it. <laughs> I was like, am I gonna find magazines? Like, what am I gonna find here? No, it was, and it felt like so poetic. Was like, it was like his secret stash of Chicano books. Yeah, I have them. I have them on my shelf. You're looking at me with your like your jaw drop right now. <laughs> so. It, that it was, was always one place dad was very adamant we can never look in there even if there was nothing in front of it we cannot look in there and it felt so perfect that that's what i yeah. found in there. so it was like bless me ultima by like rodolfo anaya like, i i kind of feel like um dad maybe had the same attitude that grandma had in that right before grandma passed away i asked her if she ever imagined that people would want to learn Spanish, that it would be so common and so accepted. And she said, I had no idea. If I had known, I would have taught Spanish to my kids a long time ago. I would have made sure that everybody knew Spanish. And she said, I was just trying to save my kids. And so I feel like dad maybe had that same attitude of like, you know, this was so traumatizing. This was so uh, like heartbreaking and so it's like, maybe if I don't involve my kids in that, they'll be saved. I think we saw that, like, wait, you didn't save us from anything. It still happened. Right. Right? Like, it's still, we're, we've still dealt with discrimination and racism. We still dealt with people doubting us. We've still yeah. dealt with all those things. I mean, how many times in our lives have we been asked, like, what are you? And then we give an answer. No, but, like, really, what are you? You know, or, like, you, you know, really questioning, from? do you speak Spanish? Okay, why don't you speak Spanish? Oh, shame on you. You don't speak Spanish and stuff like that. Like, that's, that's you know, it's not a shameful thing. And I feel like it was kind of that way for dad and then for the generation before. How much have you thought about that, especially now that you're a parent? <laughs> how much does that, how, how have you brought that to the future? <laughs> you're going to make me cry. <laughs> um, it is a huge piece of my parenting. And with uh, my daughter, can I say her name? If you want to. Okay. Um, so Olivia is my daughter and she is nine. Um, and before she was even born, I knew without a doubt I wanted her to learn Spanish from a young age. I'm going to find a way. And from there, like I wanted to raise her to know where she's from and to keep fighting the good fight. I think about one of my professors in grad school who was there like dad died while I was in grad school and I was like trying to finish my thesis and he's like he was like so super empathetic he's like I don't know how you're going through what you're going through but you know like we keep them alive by by keeping them in our memory like sharing their memories and like it's always really good to to talk about dad like this, this is where I cry <laughs> yeah God. I mean Olivia was born three months before dad died and so it's really nice to share those stories with the grandbabies, you know, and let them know who was grandpa dad from each of our perspectives and stories. And then to hear them repeat stories about dad, I think is like the, the most heartwarming thing you could hear. I love it. I love you. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> That story was produced by Anjali Sastri and edited by Jordana Hochman.